Hello and welcome to the second part of this Paro seminar that is looking at the debate that took place uh, between Slavio Shizek and Jordan Peterson in Toronto. Uh, in the first seminar, you'll know that I try to set the scene about where these two thinkers come together and where they differ and how they come together in the sense that they have some similar interests. One is in Christianity. They both uh, do very substantive readings of the Christian tradition. Secondly, they're both interested in subjectivity or the unconscious. And thirdly, they are both uh, critical of progressive liberal politics. Uh, and because of those three things that they share, um, they, uh, you know, they, it seems appropriate that those two people might come together, but they differ very radically in how they interpret those things. So Peterson is a Jungian, uh, whereas Slavio Šizek is a dialectic thinker. And uh, yeah, I covered basically the similarities and the differences. So now the debate has happened and I want to just do a little brief reflection on some of the things that came up. Uh, the first thing I should probably say, and by the way, there are going to be so many hot takes on this debate over the next six months. Uh, there's going to be so many people doing commentaries and reflecting on it. Some of them will be brilliant. Some of them might be terrible, will definitely be terrible. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just want to give you my piece. But one of the things that is uh, interesting about the debate itself is just how passionate people are about it. Uh, how much people hate it or how much people are excited about it, uh, how disappointed they were in it, uh, etc. Like there's a lot of passion and emotion around this debate and I think that's fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I'm so supportive of it is precisely because of all of this uh, controversy. Uh, and yet I don't think it's, because not all controversy is good, of course. And um, if it was just getting people to go back into their tribal groups, that would be pretty bad. But uh, actually, it seems to be generating productive conversations. I mean, in my life anyway, I've had some productive disagreements with people. Uh, and if people online that I've been looking at, there's a lot of funny memes and whatnot. But there's also, uh, you know, a fair amount of reasonable dialogue and discussion about the issues that were raised. So I think the very fact that this was so controversial and that this is remaining so controversial and people have an opinion about it uh, is actually one of the strengths of the debate, one of the reasons why I think it was good for the debate to happen. Now I should also say, uh, this is, will be no surprise to most of you, uh, that I um, have been very influenced by Slavio Šizek. So I'm not coming into this debate with a similar uh, view on both thinkers. Uh, Shizek is someone who I've been reading seriously for around five years or more. Uh, he actually uh, came up on my PhD. I read something of his 20 years ago and I don't remember much about it but it made its way into my PhD. Uh, I obviously liked what I read but I never went any further with it. It was just this philosopher from Slovenia uh, he was writing something that, that connected with what I was doing. And uh, yeah, he made, he made it into the PhD and maybe a footnote. But 15 years later, I stumble across him again 
and he has become one of the big influences philosophically or intellectually in my life, um, along with half a dozen others, but he definitely has been an important figure. Uh, however, I don't want to, in this commentary, uh, do this big defensive Shizek or anything like that. I do want to maybe draw out uh, where these two thinkers were exploring similar ideas and um, uh, see where it goes. So there you go. Uh, I'm going to concentrate primarily on their opening exchanges. And you'll notice, of course, this wasn't really a debate. Uh, this was two people who presented a case, then they had a little bit of back and forth, uh, and, and then it was over. Uh, Peterson, in his opening, didn't really didn't reference Shizek's work at all. Uh, Shizek only referenced Peterson's work a little bit uh, in relation to, say, the lobster thing. Uh, but they were both presenting a case. And that was very important to Shizek. I don't know, I haven't heard Peterson talk about the debate yet, but... But Shizek said he wasn't so keen on debating Peterson, but rather presenting alongside him to show that some of the reasons why people like Peterson and have been drawn to him, uh, Shizek actually can understand and appreciate. Uh, but he wants to give an alternative uh, diagnosis of the problem and a different notion of the cure to Peterson, but respecting that the same uh, symptoms that, br that bring people uh, into the orbit of Peterson are things that Shizek takes seriously and thinks are important, right? So they both present their case. And um, there's a certain way in which you can actually see that there was a trajectory that both of them were, uh, I wouldn't say arguing similar points, but they, they were not... Um, they were in parallel lines, maybe call it that. So if you watch the debate, you know that Peterson started off with a critique of the Communist Manifesto. Now that is a bit of an issue. <laughs> um, and, and lots of people will be bringing that up in the next six months. Only because the Communist Manifesto uh, was, a, was a, basically a tract that Marx wrote with Engels that was designed to motivate workers, uh, people who uh, were not university educated. It was a call to arms, beautifully written and it's insightful, it's interesting, but it's not really what you should be looking at to level a critique of Marxism. Uh, it, would be, it would be like critiquing David Lynch for one of the adverts that he's done. So David Lynch has done a couple of adverts like Wes Anderson, other directors. And in those adverts, you'll definitely get something of the director. You will see some of their flair, some of their signature ideas. But if you really want to critique them, uh, you know, Lynch, you, you might look at some of his classic movies. You might look at uh, Mulholland Drive or something like that, um, or Razorhead, to, to really get into his work. And so... That is, yeah, that's where Peterson starts, but he starts because I suppose the Communist Manifesto is a popular work of Marx. If people haven't read anything else, they might have read some of that. And he started to outline some of his disagreements with it. And that, I've just got some notes, some of the things that he said. I, I noted there was like five different things that he disagreed with in the book. And he said there's lots of things he disagreed with. Um, but the first 
was he said that uh, Marx is looking at everything primarily through an economic lens of uh, conflict between classes. And Peterson uh, starts by saying that not everything that motivates history, not everything that happens in humanity is about economics. Uh, but I would say that Marx isn't saying that either. He just says primarily the history of humanity is a history of uh, economic conflicts, uh, conflicts between people about resources, basically materiality. And yeah, that is true that that is actually an important point within Marxism, is Marxism is a critique of uh, idealism. Uh, idealism being the notion that we are basically motivated by ideas, by ways of seeing the world. Uh, Marx comes in and says, well, no, our way of seeing the world, our way of understanding our place in it, is a reflection of our material circumstances. It's a reflection of our resources, etc., etc. Um, and uh, I think I don't think Marx would say it's the only thing in terms of uh, understanding individuals, but in terms of having a a, a broad understanding of, of world history, it is there is a history of uh, conflict. Uh, now, interestingly, at this point. Uh, Peterson makes an argument that I think is a very common argument against Marxism um, and it is the idea that this conflict that we see between people and um, between groups is not just in the history of human beings it's actually uh, embedded or encoded in uh, biology. Uh, basically evolution is a series of conflicts between species and within species. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole uh, uh, constellation of conflicts uh, in terms of hierarchy. And so what, what Peterson wants to say is that what Marx thinks of as a merely contingent historical fact uh, is actually something that's in our very biology. We can't get around it. There will always be fighting over power, whether it's, you know, some people have more money than others, some people are able to run faster than others, some people are able to have more partners than others. Uh, you can't erase all of that. Uh, it's, a, it's a type of fiction. It's not possible, and it wouldn't even be desirable. In fact, uh, Peterson quotes Dostoevsky, who says that, imagine a society where everyone got everything they wanted. Uh, we would find a way to break that so that we could get into this uh, chaos again, because there's something about evolutionary um, struggle that's actually part of what it means to have a meaningful life. Um, and actually, I don't think Marx would disagree with that. So that's, that's his first point. And, and I think this is where I think there's something similar, is there are people who are saying within the kind of progressive and liberal circles, they seem to be suggesting that we get to a place of non-antagonism uh, where we are all equal. And Marx isn't saying that. Uh, Marx is basically just saying that what we can do is purely in terms of economics, in terms of work, we can find a way to have a more equitable system. But then, uh, I think it was Richard Wolff or somebody else who said this recently, but said like, but then you may want to write a great novel, right? And maybe you want to write a great novel, but you can't because you have to work 
uh, in this difficult job, you can't make enough money to make ends meet, right? So you can never write this great novel that you want to write. You're oppressed by this job, you can't make enough to really pay your rent, it's just difficult. Well, imagine then you lived in a society where you, were, you had uh, uh, employment um, that fulfills you more, that you had some investment in, and that look, took care of your needs. Then you could go and you could write that great novel. And then you might realise that you can't write <laughs> and that that great novel you wanted to write, you're just not a really good novelist. Uh, Marx is not arguing that we get to the point where everyone's going to be equally good at everything. He's just interested in a particular uh, economic issue and whether we can create a society in which uh, distribution uh, is, is fairer. So for Marx, and actually uh, Peterson brings this up because in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx shows a real appreciation for capitalism, uh, which is something that people don't really uh, remember, is that Marx was fascinated by capitalism. And one of the things that fascinated him about capitalism was its ability to produce. Uh, for him, capitalism solved the problem of scarcity, basically. We can create enough food for everybody, enough shelter for everybody, we enough clothes for everybody, but it hasn't solved the issue of distribution. And so for Marx, he's going, yeah, this is amazing. There's such productivity within capitalism. Uh, in fact, Marx even thought that communism would be even more productive than capitalism. And I think that's an area where uh, uh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> communism is sometimes within Marx's circles, sounds like capitalism without the obstacles and antagonisms. Anyway, the point being, uh, oh yeah, capitalism has this great ability to create resources, but we need a system in which distribution is, is fairer. Uh, and then other forms of inequality will continue to exist uh, because that is really the nature of, uh, of, of being a biological creature. Um, uh, and that's not, it's like not medals for everyone necessarily. Uh, now, on this, I do, I do want to mention something which is, and this is where I think uh, Peterson has an issue, and, and Shizek brought this up later on in the debate. There was a point, if you watched it, where Shizek said to Peterson, listen, you think that they, um, the universities are overrun by postmodern Marxists, and uh, that's actually a bit of an oxymoron. Postmodernism and Marxism are quite different, but you know, you use the term. They, these, 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 these people who are doing this cultural Marxism, etc., etc. And Shizek did challenge Peterson and said, "Name one academic Marxist, a significant figure uh, who is kind of like uh, not marginalized within the American Academy as a true Marxist." And you know, Peterson said, "Well, there's research that says there are lots of Marxists, but uh, you know, but he didn't mention any." Uh, Shizek brought up too, he said, well, you could talk about David Harvey or Frederick Jameson, who are two big Marxist academics. But then Shizek said, but they are very sidelined in the academy. Um, they, they have great trouble in the academy. Um, the issue is, and this is why it's important for this debate, is Shizek is attempting to say that the very thing that Peterson is attacking deserves to be attacked. The only difference is it's not traditional Marxism. Although, <laughs> um, as Peterson pointed out, uh, Shizek is not a traditional Marxist either, right? So 
the question is whether the American university is overrun by leftists and Marxists or whether actually it's overrun by something else that is equally alienating uh, people like Peterson and also people like Harvey and Shizek and Jameson. Um, but yeah, so, so this idea that Shizek, and Shizek brings this up, he says Marx is not someone who is saying we are all equal and we can get rid of the antagonisms. It's just basically he's saying that there are different ways to manage these antagonisms and he wants to create a system in which workers have uh, uh, access to the means of production and uh, are not exploited. Okay, the, the second thing Peterson brings up <clears throat> is this idea of the dic dictatorship of the proletariat. And it's a com complicated idea. Uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat is really a very kind of punchy way of saying that workers should have the ability to decide uh, 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 make decisions about the workplace, right? So at the moment, uh, a CEOs and maybe a small board of directors will make decisions about an organization. And the workers don't get a say in that nine times out of 10. Um, but uh, dictatorship of the proletariat looks a little bit more like democracy. You know, in democracy, we all get to vote about who makes the decisions in the country. Uh, we you know, we don't vote about every single thing, but we vote about who we want in, in uh, Parliament or in the White House or whatever. And they are there because they represent the will of the people. And uh, the, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat is a little bit like that. It's a little bit like saying that if you're in a business, uh, you should have some ability to make decisions within that business. You should, so we don't have, it sounds weird at first to go like, so, you know, workers would be able to vote about big decisions within their workplace. But that's kind of it. It's like saying that, yeah, whenever there are big decisions about how a business goes forth, like a cooperative, uh, everyone has a investment in the business and gets to make decisions. And interestingly, uh, Peterson, is we, we seems to be against that because he feels that uh, workers wouldn't have necessarily the expertise to be able to decide what's in the best interest of their corporation, right? So what you do is you bring in a CEO who has great expertise, someone who has worked in some other business and they come in and they know what they're doing. So basically you have people at the top who are experts who run the company. But Shizek, is countering that. Um, and uh, by the way, I'm bringing together themes that were in this massive debate, but at different places, I'm trying to kind of bring them together. But there was a point in the debate where Shizek is saying, well, here's the interesting thing is actually we need to not give in to the temptation of having experts run things, whether it's the country or whether it's a company, there's a real danger in, in giving everything over to experts. There's a real rule for experts. Experts should be uh, you know, counselling, they should be giving advice. That's very, very important. But Shizek is saying that structurally speaking, um, uh, once you start looking for an expert, uh, you actually really start going against democracy. And you can actually have dumb leaders, <laughs> and, but the, a group of people voting on, on who's gonna be in power, uh, if you've got enough, uh, 
you know, if enough people are voting and enough people are interested in the issues and are thinking about it, you will have an individual who is running a company that reflects the will of the people in it and actually will, will often make better decisions than some sort of expert. And the way to think about this is, is almost like a psychoanalysis. In psychoanalysis, you, your analyst could be an idiot, right? They could be a nasty person in real life. But in the analytic room, they play a structural role. And that structural role, or a priest, a priest could be terrible, but when they're in confessional and you're confessing to them, they are a symbolic role. So Shizek talked about this in relation to Kierkegaard. And he was saying that Kierkegaard says a child doesn't obey their father because their father is an expert. It's somebody who is, who is worthy of being respected. It's the symbol of father that's, that's the important thing. And Shizek is trying to defend actually a very basic thing in, in, in democracy, which is that actually your leaders um, are almost, it's, it's almost a good thing that they're dumb. I mean, that's the whole point of monarchy. Is monarchy, you are not the king or the queen because you're smarter than everybody else uh, or you're better looking than everybody else or anything like that. It's a pure accident of birth. And so it's a version of that. It's like you're a leader because we voted you in. And yes, you get advice from experts, etc., etc. But actually, we should all have a say in who is in charge. And that's kind of like the dictator, dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, now, Peterson was thinking and seeing this as a potential problem because he thought that basically, oh, it's, it's letting the workers be in control. And as soon as you give control to them, you, they may do it well or they may do it terribly. They may be good people. They may be bad people. And he was saying that he thinks that uh, in Marxism, there is a splitting of the world into goodies and baddies, cowboys and Indians. Uh, you know, in the old days, it was the cowboys were the goodies, the Indians were the baddies. And today, you know, we kind of might swap that around for good reason. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but either way, whichever one you say is good and bad, you split the world into kind of two units. And it's the bourgeoisie and they're bad and the proletariat and they're good. However, I would, I say that, again, it's, Marx isn't saying that the proletariat, uh, the workers, um, and by the way, even the term proletariat is difficult to unpack, but say, you know, we're talking about people who are downtrodden by the system, etc., etc. He's not saying that they're all good, ethically or morally, but he is saying that if you can create a system in which everybody gets an opportunity to vote, it empowers people and it will uh, you know, lead to potentially better results than the alternative. And that, that's the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is, by the way, only an intermediary uh, stage for, for Marx. The dictatorship of the proletariat ultimately was a stage on the way to something else. Um, but yes, about, just to clarify then what Peterson's concern was, he was reading that, and maybe rightly so, he worries that there is a scapegoating mechanism in Marxism. And interestingly, Shizek has a similar critique that anything with a scapegoat mechanism is bad, whether it's Marxism or fascism or whatever. So he's worried there's like the goodies and the baddies, the oppressors and the oppressed. And actually, it's much more complicated than that. Um, and uh, it is much more complicated than that. <clears throat> oh, yeah, the third thing he mentioned was just that... Uh, it seems like Marx is suggesting that uh, communism will have hyper-productivity. Um, and he questions uh, why that would be when you take 
away the certain motivations that exist within capitalism. And uh, again, I agree with him here. Uh, I think that Marx was so enamored by capitalism that he felt that communism would be a type of hyper-productivity without obstacle. Uh, but today, I think we're more aware that potentially that's what's going to destroy the world. <laughs> that that hyper-productivity um, is, I would say, part of the DNA of contemporary consumerism. And it's, it's something that actually needs to be... Uh, uh, addressed. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Peterson's not saying hyper productivity is wrong. He's just saying that he can't understand how a post capitalist system would have hyper productivity. Um, uh, I'm saying that uh, I think it probably is a bad thing now that we have lim we know we have limited resources. Um, productivity is very very good, but productivity that is kind of just moves forward without thinking, like a snowball ga gathering speed, uh, could be the end of us all, who knows? Might not be. <laughs> um, he also talked about, he said, um, we said Marx and Engels don't consider where they might be wrong and the consequences of their position. And uh, I think Peterson is referencing here how basically after Marx, you don't have to go very far before you get to Soviet Russia, to Stalin and to the uh, the horrors of Stalinism. Uh, and so I think he was feeling that we have to have a certain humility about our ideas. And I think he sees within Marx a certain uh, dictatorial kind of like uh, arrogance. Uh, and again, I... I don't, I don't, I think that probably is true of the Communist Manifesto because it is a manifesto. It's a tract. It's like Luther writing uh, his tracts. You're trying to evoke something. But uh, whenever you read something like Capital, it is just painful uh, at times. It's painfully uh, precise and pondering and long. And um, you have like in Marx's works, his early philosophical works, etc., you have him wrestling a lot with these kinds of questions. So I think that is partly um, because he just read the Communist Manifesto that he's seen this kind of Marx as the revolutionary. Uh, Marx definitely had that vibe about him. And uh, it's like Luther, Luther had that vibe about him. So there's probably some truth to that. But uh, I think that the Communist Manifesto probably is, is if, you, if that's the only thing you've read, you're gonna have like a pretty skewed view not that I think that's necessarily the only thing he's read of Marx, but that's definitely the, uh, the most uh, fiery you'll get. And then um, he mentions at the end that capitalism, for all its faults, is actually eliminating poverty. That, uh, that there are certain statistics that are saying that the, the very poor, the number of the very poor, uh, is diminishing. And, um, and so he says, basically, the, the cap capitalism is working to some extent. Uh, the high tide raises all boats. So that kind of notion. So there's, there's Peterson's basic argument. He thinks that Marxism primarily splits the world into goodies and bodies and has a scapegoat mechanism. Um, he thinks that uh, it views things in primarily economic terms. Um, it doesn't understand. It tries to make us all equal whenever uh, inequality and conflict is... Uh, hard-baked into reality itself uh, and that actually what we need to do is find a way to manage it a little bit to turn it into something good but that you can't get rid of it. Um, he also says that uh, 
Marx could do with being a little more humble. Uh, he doesn't understand how uh, post-capitalist society could have hyper-productivity, and he thinks that capitalism's doing a half-decent job. That's the argument. Um, now, interestingly, Shizek kind of takes the wind out of the sails because Shizek is not coming in with a defence of what Peterson has attacked. And that's very important. And Peterson acknowledges it himself. Uh, and in fact, and it's a very cordial uh, discussion, and uh, you know, which is really nice to see as well. There's a certain civility in the midst of the disagreements. But, but Shizek doesn't come in and go, well, hold on a second, we can have equality and we can have hyper-productivity and uh, uh, you, this, this class conflict is a good thing where there's goodies and baddies and all of that. And Peterson himself says he's surprised after hearing Shizek's presentation that Shizek isn't defending what Peterson is attacking. And in fact, not only is Shizek not defending what Peterson is attacking, Shizek actually goes even further in his critique. So if you listen, and I think this is the key to what was going on. If you listen to Shizek's work, and Shizek is difficult at times. If this is your first time hearing him, there's a lot of stuff that he puts out uh, into his talk. Uh, he read it, which is very rare for Shizek, so he's obviously trying to be on point. But if you listen carefully, what you'll find is he's basically saying that uh, that what Peterson sees as Marxism, uh, Shizek is also attacking, but he just doesn't think it's Marxism. And so what Shizek does, uh, let me just look at my notes, is first of all, uh, Shizek does address the topic directly at the beginning, which was, uh, was it communism, com uh, communism, capitalism, and happiness. And Shizek starts with this kind of rather interesting example. He says, where Actually, all three of these things can be seen in China. Uh, China has a type of capitalism. It's, it's, there's an aggressive type of capitalism happening there, but with a very authoritarian type of state. So a communist government doing capitalism, uh, raising the standard of living of people and raising the levels of happiness uh, of people. Uh, now, Shizek is not using China as an example of something good. He's actually using it as kind of, a, he's, he's touching on the idea that while capitalism has traditionally been anti-authoritarian, it's been democratic, uh, he's saying that it's not necessarily democratic. It's not necessarily anti-authoritarian. So he looks at China and says, there you have a highly authoritarian structure uh, that is also doing aggressively well in terms of capitalism. Um, and if you want to use the criteria of happiness, uh, is probably uh, raising people's levels of happiness. Uh, and he's saying this is not a good thing. So, whenever he so he basically starts off and says, right, communism, capitalism and happiness are not necessarily what we want. They're not, neither, none of these are necessarily good. In fact, you could have a society that seems to have all of them and that would be bad. And he, he then starts to give an assessment of uh, potential, potential problems or issues within our contemporary political situation. And this is quite interesting. The first thing he talks about is responsibility. He says that uh, we, and this isn't just about our contemporary time but we all we find it difficult to take responsibility we find freedom terrifying uh, Sartre said this beautiful 
beautifully whenever he talked about uh, how we are condemned to be free. Um, Shizek, uh, as a Lacanian, has uh, a very strong notion of personal responsibility, um, uh, but also a very keen awareness of how we try to avoid responsibility all the time, whether we, like as a Gideon's Bible, where you have all the answers at the back. If you've got a problem with a relationship, you look at the back, it tells you what page to look at. If you've got a problem with health, it tells you what page to look at. If you've got a problem with depression, there's a, there's a verse you go to. If you're having trouble turning on your television set, you can find a verse, right? So everything is listed there. Or whether we go to palm readers, whether we look at astrology, astronomy talk, uh, charts, or astrology talks, right? Uh, uh, charts. Uh, whether we look for advice of teachers, whether we um, roll dice. I mean, we're always trying to somehow avoid the responsibility of having to make decisions. Um, even today, you'll notice that people get offended on behalf of other people. It's like there's some, there, in relation to that, sorry, is because for Shizek, what we want to do is we often hide our freedom by saying that we are responding to a higher call, a higher duty, whether it's historical necessity, whether it's God, um, whether it's other people, we are we're uh, we are compelled by our responsibility to some other so uh, in the example I was using there somebody might get offended for another group of people well I'm not offended by what you said but I it's my duty to stand up for this group that I think would be offended now what that generally means is there's a disavowed form of offense in you but you're putting it onto the other it's like when people say well I know what people are thinking when I walk down the street you know, they're thinking that I've got a big nose, right? Now, what you're saying is you think you've got a big nose right? and you're putting it onto the other. And uh, what Shizek is drawing out is how, he wants to say we are responsible even for our duty. We are responsible even for uh, obeying what we think we have to obey. And what he tries to show is he talks about, say, religious fundamentalists, who will blow up buildings and kill people with impunity. And they think they're doing that for the sake of God. But in a sense, that is a, a, that is a reflection of their own desire that is put onto the figure of the big other. So it's, a, it's like I'm doing my duty, but actually you're responsible for your duty. You actually want to do that. And, and religion is allowing you to do that with impunity. Uh, or ideology. So within Stalinism, the idea was that you could kill thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people because it was in the interest of historical necessity, of fate, of destiny. You were having to do this reluctantly uh, for the sake of the utopia, the final end point. And Shizek is saying we cannot escape from our responsibility, and this is a problem that whether whatever your political belief is, your religious or ideological position is, you have to take responsibility for it. And he's, he's actually critiquing liberal society a lot here. He's kind of subtly saying that you can see how we are not taking responsibility for thinking well. We're not taking responsibility for our own positions we're always saying that i'm speaking on behalf of this group i'm speaking on behalf of god i'm speaking on behalf of 
socialism or whatever. So he says right, we need to take responsibility. Secondly, he says we have to be careful not to we have to we have to take on our suffering we have to acknowledge our pain and he's referencing peterson here because peterson is about acknowledging the difficulties of life uh not running away from it but looking at it and she's like saying you're absolutely right and then all he's saying is but do not fall in love with your suffering and he's not he's not critiquing peterson here Again, he's actually critiquing a tendency that you see within contemporary uh, liberalism, which is the idea that, you know, Western democracy is guilty of everything, right? It's like we like to see ourselves as guilty. We enjoy, we get some sort of pleasure out of the self-flagellation of, of thinking that we are responsible for everything. And elsewhere, Shizek has called this the, a form of racism. It's like it used to be there's a thing called, is it white man's burden? Which means, you know, we have to, the white men, the Europeans, we have the burden of civilizing people. But then the opposite of that is, is just, a, it's just the other side of the coin, which is white man's shame which is that we are responsible for everything, that uh, other people don't have moral agency, right? Other people haven't risen to the level of being able to do something wrong, right? They're, they're more like animals. You don't, you don't critique a dog for, for doing something wrong because you'd be like, it's a dog. So whenever you say, well, I'm guilty and nobody else is guilty, it's a way of saying that I am actually, you know, a moral subject, a moral being, uh, unlike you. Uh, and he's saying that what we can do is we can often uh, fall in love with our suffering. Anybody knows this when if you're you know, 17 years old, uh, you're sitting in your room listening to the Grateful Dead, uh, dressed in black and kind of like, uh, you know, considering uh, death, right? That's a, that's a, a common thing for teenagers, obviously. Um, uh, but it's a, it can be a phase where you actually see the enjoyment of it. There's an enjoyment in in holding on to the suffering and that becomes its own impediment to progress. So again, what Shizek is doing here is he's offering kind of, uh, what would you call it? Um, he's offering a critique that uh, of some contemporary political movements. And the third thing he says, and this gets really interesting, he says that we have to beware of uh, creating needing an enemy we have to be careful of needing our suffering right so he said you know i said in point uh it was point three that uh we uh that we can fall in love with our suffering uh this is kind of just extrapolating on that he says that we can enjoy uh a friend of mine has a term for it she calls it enjoyment right which is uh, the, the enjoyment you get from being annoyed and uh, you can think of it in terms of people's hatred of Donald Trump, for example. There was a great uh, sign that Democrats had that said, love Trump's hate. And it was interesting because, of course, on the surface, it means love is better than hate and Trump is hateful. But you could also read it in a Freudian way and say, well, we love Trump's hate. We enjoy listening to the latest catastrophe. We want to hear the latest crazy thing in the White House. We want to look at his tweets. We're actually libidinally invested in having that person because we somehow get 
so much out of it. We get meaning out of it. We get frustration out of it. We enjoy our suffering. And he uses the example of Lacan, where Lacan says, if you're a guy and you find out that your wife is sleeping around, you're jealous, right? You're jealous. You think your wife's sleeping around and you find out that she is. Uh, Lacan says you can still be pathologically jealous. It's just you happen to be right. Like there's that old saying, it says, just because uh, you think, what was it? Um, oh, I forget the saying. Is it just because you think they're following you doesn't make you paranoid? I, I forget what the saying is, but it's basically you can be jealous, find out that you're right, therefore think that your jealousy is not pathological. But actually your jealousy is pathological. You just now can hide it from yourself. Like you could be a hypochondriac, right? You're a hypochondriac, you think you've got cancer, you go to the hospital, you know, every three months, you're back at the doctor's getting a lump looked at, getting an MRI scan, whatever it is. And then three years later, you find out that you have cancer and suddenly you go like, look, I'm not a hypochondriac, I was right, I have cancer. Well, Lacan would say, well, no, you're a hypochondriac who happens to also have cancer. Um, and so you can have an enemy who is worthy of being an enemy, but you also require them, you also love them, you also need them. And Shizek's point is, if that is the case, then you're not going to get rid of them because in a sense, you're libidinally invested in them. Uh, it's like, if you're a hypochondriac and you have cancer, you are less motivated to get rid of it because you have an anxiety and the anxiety is seeking an object to contain it. So your anxiety is always looking for cancer. When you find out you've got cancer, the anxiety is contained. Oh, I'm anxious because of the cancer. Not I have anxiety and it's frantically looking for cancer. It's like, oh, my anxiety is the result of the cancer. And so if you got rid of the cancer, you would discover the anxiety is still there. If you're not a hypochondriac and you find you have cancer, there's no reason why you want the cancer. You don't want it unconsciously. There's no libidinal investment in it. So you're more likely to make the right choices and perhaps perhaps uh, overcome it and fight it. So Shizek is saying that in all sides, we have to ask ourselves whether we get something out of our enemy um, and whether that is actually giving us something, uh, binding our anxiety, giving us some sort of pleasure. Um, and then, what else? Uh, oh yeah, okay, then he also, um, he brings out the idea that political correctness might not be a problem that is threatening to destabilize our Western democratic system, but rather a symptom of a disavowed violence within it, something that we covered in the first seminar. And then finally, uh, he mentions that uh, egotism is not the problem. Whenever people say, oh, we're living in a society where people are so egotistical and we're always pursuing more stuff, we want more things. Um, uh, Shizek says, uh, well, no, no, the problem is actually within consumerist capitalism, not that we're egotistical, but actually we are pervertedly selfless. We can't be satisfied with what we have, we're always wanting more and more and more to the detriment of our health, our well-being, our friends. You don't see animals running around trying to get bigger and bigger nests or shelters and more and more food. Uh, they can be satisfied when their basic needs are met. 
Whereas we have this very unnatural drive for more and more and more. And he's saying that actually the big problem is envy and jealousy. That often, uh, if we, basically if we have a critique of society, we just have to be very careful that it's not motivated by envy or jealousy. And the difference between the two very quickly is jealousy is where you want what another person has. So say uh, there's a, a woman who's going out with this guy and you want that guy. So you're jealous of her. Or uh, I have a friend who I love their apartment. So I want that apartment. I'm jealous of that apartment. Uh, and there's a whole mimetic structure that, that facilitates that. So that's what jealousy is. Envy can be described as the uh, dislike not, not the desire for what the other person has, but the desire for the happiness that that person is getting from something. So for example, you might look at a couple, two friends, and you might not want to be with their partner. So you're not jealous, but you're envious of the type of relationship they have. So you want that for yourself. And Shizek brings this out because he says envy and jealousy uh, enable us to do very damaging things to other people and to ourselves. And at the very end of the debate, he references that old, I think it's a Slovenian parable about God who says to a farmer, you've been a very wise and faithful worker. I will grant you anything you want. What would you like? And the farmer's about to speak and then God says, listen, before you do, I'll tell you what, whatever I give you, hey, it's a great day. It's a day of great blessing. I will give your neighbor double. And so the farmer thinks for a second and then says, well, pluck out one of my eyes, right? That is what jealousy and envy does. It so hates the other that you will even destroy yourself, your own reputation, your own future, just to hurt the other person. And again, what Shizek is saying is that jealousy and that envy can hide very well whenever it's folded into a legitimate uh, concern into a legitimate movement into a legitimate critique just like the pathological jealousy can be hidden very well if your partner actually is sleeping around right um, so too can envy and jealousy hide in moral uh, conviction and that Nietzsche was very big on this he saw that so much of our morality is actually hidden resentment Right, a desire to see sickness in everything, to bring everything down. That's the difference between resentment and resentment. Everyone feels resentment occasionally, right? That's, you know, it's fine. You might feel it a couple of times, you might feel it a lot. But resentment is when resentment just covers over everything. It's the lens through which you see the whole of life. Um, now, actually, there's a couple more things that she's like said. So there your was a lot packed into it. Um, I'm going to mention two more and then I'll, I'll try and sum up. Uh, the next thing he said is he then brings up the lobster issue with about Peterson. Um, and because Peterson talks about how natural authority uh, can be seen in the animal kingdom where a stronger creature can dominate the weaker, certain hierarchies are created. And Shizek is very careful to say, absolutely, we are part of the natural world. There are various hierarchies. This can be seen. However, human beings have a certain dimension 
um, that uh, doesn't fit neatly into this. And basically, he doesn't talk about this, but it's called death drive. That's what the Freudian death drive is. It's what kind of like, uh, set, it's, it's what perverts those natural instincts. And I've done talks about that elsewhere in the Power of Seminars. If you want to go back to, there's three seminars I gave on Shizek, and uh, that will cover a lot of that material. Uh, but for now, what Shizek is saying, he says, okay, the lobster thing, um, the difference is authority doesn't work like that or doesn't have to work like that within human uh, groups. And I referenced this earlier, actually, where he says, like, a father is not a father because of his strength and because of his character. You could have a very bad father. They are symbolically a father, just like a priest can be a symbol of, some, of, the, of the grace of the world. So the universe... You, you can't just experience grace through a piece of uh, driftwood that says you are accepted, right? You, you have to, you go to somebody like an analyst perhaps, and they become the symbolic uh, embodiment of the universe saying you are accepted, right? And then you experience that. And it's not because they are a really good person, they're a holy person, it's that they're structurally in that position. And what she's like saying is, He's making a very subtle distinction, but he's saying, Peterson, you have to be careful because as soon as you start saying that we need hierarchical structures where the most talented, the experts, the strongest, the best are at the top and they you know, tell us what to do. She's like saying, no, we do need hierarchies, but he's almost saying the opposite. We need a hierarchy where the person at the top is dumb. The person at the top is basically there just to dot the i's and cross the t's of what the people want um and uh you know i say monarchy as an example of that is that uh, we all we all know they're not there because of they're smart or they're chosen by god or anything like that uh so she's like saying that 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 authority can exist in a symbolic way and actually can reflect the will of the people which is the pro the dictatorship of the proletariat it's where actually the leader uh, has less opinions and really is there to enact what uh, what is democratically decided within a community rather than being so you see the same Brexit where you know there's a temptation for a leader to say well I know better than the people and so it's my job to make that decision but she's like would be very wary of that he'd be going like well no the role of the leader is to enact the will of the people even if they think the will of the people is wrong. And yes, their role is to try to do that in the best possible way, with the best possible advice. And we should be trying to create a society where people are well-educated, where people are interested in intellectual discussion. Uh, but ultimately, we want to have a society in which the, the authority is not there because they are king lobster, right? Because they are the strongest. They're there because they are committed to um, provoking our freedom. And that's why Shizek at a certain point says, you know, we need a master to help us become free. Just like we need a, an analysis if you have certain issues and you go to an analyst, you have this mute person who provokes your freedom, who is there to help you affirm life in a wider way. And you need that interaction with the other in order to walk into uh, a deeper affirmation of life. So what Shizek is doing 
in all of those points is basically saying like uh, we can hide uh, our lack of responsibility in notions of duty. We can hide our jealousies and envy in legitimate movements. We can hide our, let me see, we can uh, hide our pathology, we can hide our anxiety and our need for a scapegoat in an enemy that should legitimately be attacked. Uh, in other words, we are very good at self-deceiving and uh, we have to try to be aware of those things. Now, when it comes to communism, he does end with this. He says, well, how does this all relate to communism? And uh, he says, um, basically, oh, he said, basically, uh, that capitalism can be seen as having been very productive um, and having done incredible things. The issue is more whether capitalism is uh, getting to a point where it has antagonisms that are so intense they threaten to cause an apocalypse, uh, a, a negative apocalypse, and a kind of a destruction of the world. Um, and he mentions three. He says he thinks that they're possibly the eco, uh, ecological disaster, uh, developments in neurobiology and sciences, uh, new apartheids, new divisions within society. And uh, this is there's a theological version of this, which is the idea that uh, Phyllis Tickle talked about this, that a, a theological movement is in a response to certain questions. It is an answer to certain issues. But that response eventually generates problems of its own. And at first it's able to deal with them, it's able to adapt and to grow, but eventually it creates problems that become so difficult that a quantitative change has to happen. And this is like every 500 years there's a reformation, and a reformation is a fundamental reconfiguring of a theological institution in light of antagonisms that cannot be solved within the uh, existing paradigm. And in the same way, Shizek is saying, right, we've got these problems that are, that are rising and we have these uh, tensions that people are feeling and they're exploding in resentments and envies, they're, they're exploding in pathological anxieties and hysteria and we see it. And Shizek is saying, this is not a problem that is coming in from the outside threatening to destabilize capitalism. It is the eruption of a destabilizing force that's already there. It is the, uh, it is the concrete manifestation of antagonisms within the contemporary ideology that cannot be solved by the contemporary ideology. And so what Shizek says is that what you see with the liberal uh, issues that he's outlined, the, the problems, uh, that is a legitimate uh, but misplaced manifestation of a real problem within our actually existing ideology that requires a different solution and it requires a fundamental reconfiguration of society, a different type of regulation uh, in order to cope with that. And he's saying that that might sound utopic, but he's going to know the, uto the utopic thinking is thinking that we can continue on as we are and not fall into catastrophe. And we are very prone, he thinks, to that fantasy, to that utopia, that we can basically keep going as we are, make a few changes, develop our technology a bit, and it'll all be fine. Uh, somehow Google will work it all out. And he's saying that's, that's utopic thinking. 
uh, the challenge is to go, right, you know what, we actually need to address these antagonisms and think of a different way of regulating society. And that's what he calls communism. And uh, he's the first to say that he doesn't necessarily know what it looks like. He doesn't think it's necessarily going to happen. And he finishes his piece by saying that if there's light at the end of the tunnel, it might be another train coming to hit us. All right. So that was a lot. I threw in a lot out and I probably said uh, I was as wandering as the debate potentially. <laughs> but what you'll see is both of them. Right. So Peterson comes in and he attacks what he thinks is Marxism. But then Shizek comes in and says, well, yeah, actually what you're attacking isn't Marxism. What you're attacking is the symptoms of a dying ideology that, um, that is encapsulated in, in uh, identity politics. And, he, so, and so Shizek is saying, so like, and, and that's why Shizek ends. The very last thing Shizek says is, like Peterson says, his last words are, I hope this shows that we can have civil discourse even when we disagree. And then Shizek's point, which I think is very powerful, is where he says, if you don't like uh, the, you know, um, you, know you, you, you can be a leftist without being liberal. And he's basically saying, so I want you to know that you, you can reject the, the kind of what's called cultural postmodern Marxism in the university and still be on the left. And that was Shizek's desire, was to make that point in the debate. Uh, so overall, it was, it was interesting. Um, I, I thought it was a really worthwhile debate. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, it, it, um, it hopefully brought to light that some of the things that Peterson critiques is not necessarily um, connected with uh, the left. Uh, it's just connected with a certain form of kind of uh, uh, progressive politics. I'll pause there for a second and then see if there are any questions. Uh, oh yeah, there's quite a few, my goodness, yeah. Uh, my, my laptop's about to die, let me just plug it in. Here we go. <clears throat> Uh, did it literally just die before I got to plug it in? That would be amazing. Here we go. I need to get a new computer. Uh, oh no. I'll wait for one second. Open it up again. See if that works. If that doesn't work, then I am deeply sorry that uh, many of you wrote down questions. And uh, I literally just saw them and then my computer died. How did that happen? Oh well, you know what? That's great because you'll put me on the spot. You'll ask me questions that I don't know the answers to. Uh, I'll look stupid. You will no longer have any respect for me and uh, it'll be a disaster all around. But now you have the fantasy that if I'd read your questions, I would have said something deeply profound and deeply interesting in response to them. But I can't. So there you go. If I can find them after this, I'll uh, maybe go onto the Facebook page and try to address some of them. 
Thank you so much for listening into this. Uh, I hope it made some sort of sense. I hope you see what Peterson and Shizek were doing, that how they were not talking past each other, but they definitely weren't arguing with each other. There was almost a yes and nature to it. Peterson was making a position and then Shizek came, came in and said, yeah, I think it's, well, you think it's bad. I think it's even worse. Um, then Peterson comes in and says, well, I don't know if what you're talking about really is Marxism. And I think that's a legitimate thing. Shizek's uh, Marxism is maybe not traditional. Um, and then Shizek was kind of making a defense for a type of Marxism that's starting at the beginning again, that is not part of the field legacy of socialism in the 20th century. All right, thank you so much. Take care.